Tonight you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. My name is Hannah Bird and I will be your host this evening. And the time is 7pm. Well, welcome to tonight's edition of the Ecology Hour. And I want to say it's that time of year when happy holidays are in order. I think you probably all are feeling some level of festive celebration, whether it's just a um, celebration of light in the winter or looking towards some of our other festive holidays. I hope you're enjoying the um, change in the pace of the time of year. For us here at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre, this time of year actually heralds one of the busiest times of year for us as our flock of 200 Western Whiteface ewes are giving birth and we are welcoming many, many lambs. I think we have about 20 or so in the barn already. Um, which brings me to the episode of the Ecology Hour that we will be focusing on tonight. I thought it was maybe a good time to revisit a couple of interviews I actually did all the way back in 2017 with some experts about the return of wolves to California. Obviously, this time of year, when we are seeing new lambs born on the site, we're also thinking about the possible predators, um, the wonderful wildlife that we have on the site that also is a possible predator to some of our um, lambs on site. Um, so I hope you enjoy revisiting this episode. As I say, it is from 2017 and I'm looking to refresh some of the interviews with um, Professor Brochers and Professor um, L. David Meach in 2023 and we'll hear what changes there have been. Before we move to that, I wanted to invite you all to a couple of events at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre. The first one is an opportunity to meet our newborn lambs. Um, if you would like to come, this is a very family friendly event. It involves a short walk, an opportunity to meet some of the lambs, and then we do a quick wool crafting activity. We will have those events on January 14th and February 10th at 10 a.m. And you can find more information about them on our website at HREC dot u-c-a-n-r dot e-d-u. Now I also just wanted to use this as an opportunity. I'm sure many of you are enjoying uh, the cool weather, the beautiful fall and winter scenes to get out and do some hiking. I have been thrilled to be part of a small walking group called the Hopland Moai that's spelled M-O-A-I. It's a Japanese term for a small community walking group. And we um, committed as part of the Blue Zones Project Mendocino to walking once a week for at least a mile for 10 weeks. And we have stuck with that. And it's been absolutely wonderful. I've been between five and eight members of our small community walking group. I've got to know our community a lot better in these walks and talks that we have. Um, and we all feel, I think, a little bit healthier, um, a little bit more connected after the 10 week series. We were left feeling that we wanted to do it again. <laughs> and so we will be starting up more Hopland walking moais in 2023. 
One of those will be in the afternoon. I believe they'll be on Tuesday afternoons from four till five, and that will start on January 10th. And the other one, we know that there is interest in keeping a morning walking group. Our walking group so far started at 7.15 in the morning, so it was for the early birds, but it was really beautiful. We're looking for a volunteer who may be interested in leading that um, effort. And that would mean emailing out, taking care of the logistics, making sure folks know that this is something they could get involved with, um, and then just supporting um, the group for that 10-week series of walks. So if that sounds like something you would like to do, please email me or call me. My email is hbird at u-c-a-n-r dot e-d-u or call 707-744-1424 extension 105. Now we are going to pass over to our uh, episode. As I say, this is a rerun from 2017 and I hope you enjoy. That interview is to consider the start of wolves coming back into California in the first time for over 100 years. We'll be speaking with Professor Justin Brashears and Professor L. David Meach to consider how the return of wolves will affect California and what effects it may have on people's ranching styles in our area as well. With no further ado, let's move on to tonight's interviews. Now we are starting to see the first wolves returning to California in nearly 100 years in Lassen and Shasta. What does this mean for us? Are these angels or, or devils? Are they the answer to habitat degradation or a pest and a danger? Well, tonight's interviews with Dr. L. David Meach and Dr. Justin Brashears will guide us through these questions and bring us to a better understanding of just what the future might hold for California as we see the recovery of wolf populations in our state. We're going to start with Dr. L. David Meach, Senior Scientist with the Biological Resources Division, the US Geological Survey, and an adjunct professor in the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife and Conservation Biology and Ecology, Evolution and Behaviour at the University of Minnesota. Now, Professor Meach has studied wolves and their prey since 1958, as well as several other wildlife species. We began by asking Professor Meach what drew him to studying wolves and kept him there for over 50 years? Yeah, it's close to 60. I think it's 59. Um, well, in terms of the first part of it, uh, what, what made me want to study wolves, um, I've, I've always been interested um, as a teenager in, um, in carnivores. I was a, a fur trapper. I still do a little of that trapping myself now. Uh, and I, and um, to trappers, uh, carnivores are the most challenging animals to catch. And, um, and so one wants to learn as much as possible about them. Mm. Uh, so when I learned that, you know, it was, it was possible to get um, an education in wildlife uh, ecology and behavior and all, uh, I started on that route. And then um, I, I fell into the um, project that I did for my PhD work, which was the, uh, studying the wolves on Isle Royal, and um, uh, I was asked to do that study by the person who had the grant, and so 
um, uh, you know, it was like, just imagine um, a teenager, um, you know, just finishing up with a bachelor's degree and being asked to do a study on lions, for example. Of course, <laughs> anybody would jump at it. And, and this one was on wolves, and of course, I jumped at it. So, yes. so once I got into it, I found wolves to be so interesting and uh, found two, two types of challenges in, um, in working with wolves. One is the challenge that the wolf has in trying to survive, Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then the challenge of actually trying to get information about wolves uh, was a personal challenge, and that is what what has kept me going through fifty nine years. <laughs> so I, I'd like to return to that because I think one of the things that we do see um, across the time that you've been studying is that there are new tools available to help with those studies. But before we get to that point, um, I wanted to to bring up something which has been in the background. The whole time you've been studying wolves and of course the whole time that humans have had any interaction with wolves and that's the the changing public perception of the wolf um now you can help me out here but generally my understanding is that um in the u.s um there was a, a strong um kind of vilification of wolves from from many people and uh and that that was really very strong up until maybe the 70s when the Endangered Species Act offered protection of grey wolves um, in 73. And now perhaps we're seeing a bit of a change and almost a flip in the the other direction to um, hope that the wolf is the answer to all of our problems and um, can help us to to, uh, assist with ecosystem recovery. Um, I, I just wondered, in this time that you've seen these changing public perceptions, how have you continued to be able to navigate those perceptions and, and continue to stick with the scientific method without being kind of blown off course by these strong feelings? Well, well that, that's an, an excellent question. Um, but I think the answer is really um, my scientific training. Um, I, I feel very strongly that um, whether one's working with wolves or anything else, um, maintaining a certain scientific objectivity mm. is absolutely necessary. And uh, sometimes it is hard with wolves because um, just as you have perceived, the, uh, there's, there's extreme viewpoints by the public on, on both sides. Uh, that is, there's, there's still many people who really despise the wolf, and then there's many other people who, you know, really believe they're saints or angels and, mm. and all. And the reality, the scientific reality, is is that they're you know they're like any other animal. They're just a natural creature out there doing uh, what they've evolved to do. Mm-hmm. And um, my job as a researcher is to uh, look at them that way, rather than looking at you know what damage they do to human interests, and also um, you know to avoid looking too much at uh, their aesthetic side. Mm-hmm. They're basically, you know, another creature that evolved uh, to do what they do, and my job is just to learn what that is. Mm. So carrying on in that vein, one of the things that we've heard about a lot, I would say, in the last maybe five to ten years is this potential positive effect on trophic cascades in in certain parts of the the country. I wonder, would you be willing just to give us a bit of an overview as to some of the the work that's been done in that area and 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 the uh, the research that that's come sure. out of it? Thank you. You know, the basic idea is that, that wolves, by 
reducing their prey, and <clears throat> and there's some research that seems to show that uh, by causing the prey to behave differently, um, it depends on the prey animal, but for example, um, maybe not grouping up so, uh, or concentrating in, in so many areas, uh, concentrating their travels, etc. Let's just call that a behavioral um, uh, part of the, of the prey, uh, ch- possible change in prey r- related to wolves. Um, that by wolves causing lower numbers of prey animals and causing them to perhaps change their behavior, um, it has had some effect on reducing the amount of, of uh, what we call herbivory, it's a feeding on the plants mm-hmm. that, the, that these uh, prey animals do. And that then in some cases, um, there's, there's some uh, studies that seem to indicate that with a reduction in the amount of, of um, vegetation eaten by prey animals because there's fewer because of wolves, uh, that there are other effects like uh, possibly allowing more habitat for songbirds. Uh, that's been one, uh, one finding. And um, in other cases, uh, supposedly maybe beavers have come back uh, because there's more aspen um, available now that wouldn't have come up if there were too many elk before there were wolves. And so those kinds of trophic cascades um, have, are being studied. And there is certainly, I think, some good scientific evidence for certain parts of those cascades, especially wolf's effect, the wolf's effect on prey numbers mm-hmm. and possibly on the prey behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what's happened, though, is that folks who have, uh, who really um, idolize the wolf, um, I think that they have taken those studies and, um, and really tried to over-publicize them the best example is uh, a YouTube, something mm-hmm. called Wolves Change Rivers or something. That's been looked at yes. you know, millions of times, <laughs> and it would have you believe that in Yellowstone, the wolves have caused the rivers to become cleaner and all this stuff. Uh, yes. You know, um, I think that's a, you know, kind of an extreme mm-hmm. uh, look at what really goes on out there. Mm. It's interesting to see how, uh, just because perhaps media has changed, um, over time as well, how things are put out to the public and how science is condensed to um, allow public access to it. So it's interesting to see that I think that's had a role to play um, yeah. in getting that message out there as well. So if you don't mind, if, if we could move to California now um, and the, the current situation here, which is that in the last couple of years, we have started to see um, wolves just on the, the edges of California in Lassen. Um, and this is perhaps the first time in maybe 100 years that that, yes. that has been the case. So, so of course, there's, there's excitement about that. Obviously, there's also many people are, are very, very frustrated by that. Some of the excitement is generated by this sense that we might see similar positive effects on the, through the trophic cascade, as, we, as you've just been discussing. Well, if, if there were to be yes. such an effect in California, uh, it, would, it would require um, more wolves mm. for a much longer time. Mm. Mm-hmm. It isn't something that could happen overnight. And right now we are talking about only um, maybe, you know, a, a couple of different groups. I, I think I'm right yes. in saying that. Could you could you give me some advice perhaps on what do you think will be the recovery of wolves in California? Do you, Could you look into the future for us a little bit? 
Well, um, I think we have some pretty good models in terms of um, what's happened in both the state of Washington and uh, Oregon. Um, The same thing is happening in California that happened there. And in fact, I mean, it is the same phenomenon. It's just that there there are geographic or uh, political boundaries. But the phenomenon is that wolves are increasing their range from the areas where they uh, first were either... um, reintroduced like Yellowstone in central Idaho or in a few cases where they've come down from from Canada and that's a process a very natural process uh, that I think will continue to take place that that is as as wolves continue to increase and spread their population across Oregon and Washington uh, it's very natural for them to also disperse uh, because they can disperse uh, uh, you know, a thousand kilometers very mm-hmm. easily, mm-hmm. and um, and so they will continue to disperse into California and probably um, uh, Nevada and Utah and hopefully Colorado mm-hmm. um, in the next several years. So I do believe that uh, wolves will continue to increase in California. Mm. One of the one of the things that you commented in one of the papers that you sent me was that. The, these these potential positive effects have been um, studied a lot in national parks, but not so much on landscape, which has been changed by humans a lot more. And so perhaps much of the landscape that we're talking about here has has been changed a lot. And of course, part of the, the mix of the land use here is ranching and um, people who are very concerned for their livelihoods um, yes. with the return of this predator. Um, could you could you give me some of your thoughts on that? Well, um, in, in areas that have been so influenced by humans, which is almost everywhere but national parks and, and wilderness areas, um, any kind of uh, positive effect that wolves might have um, would probably be overwhelmed by the negative effects that humans are having, have had, and will have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, you know, a national park, you don't have livestock and hunting and, and um, less human use and development and all that. So changes there uh, are, you know, uh, more permanent and more significant. But when you have an area that has, um, you know, being grazed by livestock and um, has um, uh, the local fauna are hunted and trapped and all, and then um, you have vehicles running through it and power lines and, and everything else, any kind of a, oh, and, and monoculture uh, in terms of crops and everything, um, it's really hard to see what kind of a benefit wolves are going to have that might overcome any of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, I would say in those areas, trophic cascades are, uh, most of them would be pretty well overwhelmed by mm-hmm. what humans are doing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you commented on early in the uh, in this interview was was the methods that you've used um, to be studying wolves. And one of the research projects that we currently work with here on the the site at Hopland is um, UC Berkeley with the Brochers Lab, Justin Brochers Lab. They're currently using satellite um, collaring techniques on on some of the um, deer here, and they're hoping to expand that into uh, some of the larger mammals on the site too. Um, I'm interested in your your experience from you know in the early days, nearly sixty years ago now. How have you seen the techniques change, and what what do you think? What new information do you think that will allow us to have? 
Well, the newest are um, <clears throat> collars that actually record the amount of activity and and um, can can give um, some insights into the energetics of, um, of of wolves and other species for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be the very forefront of the technology right now, mm-hmm. um, and um, that just provides further insights into um, how these wolves live and. Um, it, it will allow more uh, refined information about the um, uh, the amount of food that uh, is required, and therefore the the number of prey animals they need to kill, and, and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. That has relevance to um, not just livestock depredations, but more importantly, um, to uh, prey animal uh, populations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I expect there to be you know some refinements of information in that area mm-hmm. coming up shortly. Do you think that they will allow us to have a better sense of just how beneficial or, or not or was it, or how much of a change it does make on this kind of um, behavior um, of um, browsing? So so one of the things you mentioned was this kind of this landscape of fear um, idea that the, those browsers might be aware that wolves are in the area and, and will change their feeding habits and so perhaps won't browse down some of these native plant species quite so much. Um, would the collars be able to give more sense of whether that really is the case? Because they can actually show... Yeah, they, they, they will help. Mm-hmm. Every every bit of new information one gets uh, from different directions, in this case, uh, mentioning energetics and all, um, th- that will always help because it if, um, if not providing the information directly, uh, it, it can provide either a check on existing information or some insights into a better interpretation of information we already have, like movements and that type of thing. I have two more shorter questions for you just to finish off with. Um, The first one is, you know, since we have a very specific situation here um, as one of the research centers um, for the University of California in that we do have stock on um, on the landscape on our 5,000 acres here. Um, And so we also are speaking both with the ranching community and with perhaps those who are more associated with wildlife nonprofits. The ranchers are, uh, from what I've heard, many of them are, are very, very concerned. Would you give them any words of wisdom in the experience that you've had of wolf behavior on how much effect we might see on on stock as we see wolf numbers perhaps increase? Well, there will be depredations, mm-hmm. and that um, will depend on the local situation, the way the way the livestock are kept, um, whether they're fenced, for example, or free ranged, or or um, uh, kept near near barns, or whether they're. Um, calving is done inside or out on the range. Mm-hmm. All of those uh, methods of of raising and, and uh, managing livestock uh, it will determine just um, how much depredations there'll be. Mm-hmm. But as wolves increase, um, they will end up becoming a problem in, uh, with livestock. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the case of the world around. Yeah. And um, that also implies then that there has to be some management of the wolves to try to uh, minimize that kind of conflict. It's interesting because we already have conflict, of course, on the site or, or you know, wildlife um, interactions with our stock. Um, but at the moment, it's primarily coyotes. Um, we have sheep on the site. And of course, we have to investigate, even with the coyotes, a range of tools. And one of the things that we've learned and that we're sharing with the groups around here is that there is no one tool 
it has to be constantly changing and constantly being updated. And, and from what you're saying, it's, it's just a continuation of that. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. So the last the last thing I wanted to just ask you is that, you know, we've we've touched on the fact that there has been this huge level of public interest in wolves, whether it's positive or negative, whether it inspires feelings of genuine real terror or whether, you know, complete love for these animals. So there's something about them. Can you tell us what it is? <laughs> well, I think they're um the, the fact that they are, in one sense, very, very familiar animal. That is, you know, everybody has dogs, and, you know, dogs were domesticated from wolves. And so we have this familiarity with the basic nature of wolves. And then, but then we also have uh, the fact that these wolves, um, they have this wild side to them that we can't reach. In other words, there are dogs, but they're out there... Uh, doing things we don't like, and uh, or or they're they're more beautiful than than our dogs, um, and um, they have a you know um, operating in packs and howling and that type of thing, killing animals and all um, that either uh, upsets some people or fascinates others, mm-hmm. and um, so I, I think that's probably the reason that they engender. Uh, so much extreme mm. uh, passion in both directions. Mm. So I'm sorry, I, I have one final thing just to quickly add in. Um, sure. As I've been reading up, preparing for this, one of the things I also notice in these kinds of quite polarized arguments about whether this is a good or a bad thing is that some folks feel that wolves are not a part, or particularly this um, group of wolves and uh, um, their their DNA is not a part of this landscape. Do you have any comments on that? Um, if I understood it correctly, mm-hmm. that that these wolves are like um, formed to the area or something. From what I've been reading, and I'm sure you'd be able to tell me more about it, that my that my sense is that there are some folks saying that well, this this is a Canadian oh, wolf, well, no, more of uh, no, no, right. A wolf is a wolf is a wolf for all practical purposes. Yes. And although you know you can like any other. Uh, species, you can find populations in some areas that, you know, they, they differ from populations in other areas in terms of their genetics. But, but those differences are so minor as to be o- of interest only to academics. Um, the wolf in Canada is the very same one that you mm-hmm. that lived in California and and the uh, rest of the 48 states mm-hmm. and all the way down to Mexico. There, there's variation, you know, as you go farther north, they. They get larger, and then they tend to get smaller way far north. And then as you go farther south, they tend to get smaller and and all that. But they're the same animal. Mm. Uh, For all practical purposes, they're all the same. Thank you so much for answering. That was a question that was really of interest to me. Well, I really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Well, you're quite quite welcome. Yeah, good luck with the future. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) All right, thanks then. Bye-bye. Well, thank you so much to Professor L. David Meach for joining us and starting to explain to us just what the impact of the return of wolves to California might be. He's incredibly well respected in the world of wolf research, and we really appreciated him spending some time with us. You are listening to The Ecology Hour with your host this evening, Hannah Bird, on KZYX 88.1 Fort Bragg, 90.7 Philo, 91.5 91.5 Willits and Ukiah. Now, let's get ready for our second interview of the evening with Professor Justin Brochers, 
who is the Professor of Wildlife Ecology and Conservation at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management. Now, Professor Brashez is actually conducting research on our site here at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre, and so I wanted to delve a little deeper with him into what the potential change in the California landscape might be with the recovery of wolves. So now let's return to our interview with Dr. Justin Brashez, who started by giving us a backdrop to the history of wolves in California and indeed in the U.S. Yeah, I can take a stab at that, um, and at least um, you know very much abbreviated history. But I can, we can talk a little bit about the context Great. in which wolves maybe went from being a top carnivore across North America to really being pushed back into Canada and a few smaller areas in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. But essentially, what we know from you know early records of uh, folks like Lewis and Clark, or even going back earlier than that is that uh, the wolf, uh, the timber wolf or gray wolf, occurred across uh, a huge part of North America, including the East Coast, across the Midwest, um, down into um, you know, the southern U.S., and extending, of course, into the western states and all the way to coastal California. And we know that, uh, like the you know great uh, golden bear, which was essentially a grizzly bear in California, that wolves thrived along our coast. They probably benefited hugely from salmon like they do further north in British Columbia. Um, They benefited from the immense seal colonies and whales washing up on our shore and all the rest. So we had a, uh, what what we think historically was, um, was, you know, at least a perfectly healthy wolf population Mm -hmm. in California. And then, of course, with, uh, you know, the Western expansion, the expansion of the settlement of the of the U.S. Midwest and then West, we saw just the steady uh, removal of wolves because of the threat that they posed to livestock and people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that uh, initially was, you could imagine, people setting up their you know their 40 acres or their small farms and just actively shooting every wolf they saw. Um, but over time, if, you know, eventually by the early 1900s, you start to see actually a concerted federal effort to remove large carnivores from the landscape. And that uh, is essentially the creation of what becomes today is called Wildlife Services, mm-hmm. uh, which is an agency which is empowered and, and focused on managing uh, co- wildlife conflict. And I should be clear that that's not always through lethal removal, but that's tended to be, at least historically, was the primary manner in which this federal agency would go and take large carnivores off the landscape. And again, the idea there is that the federal government is trying to assist, um, you know, growing livestock industry and others who are just really uncomfortable with having uh, 80 to 140 pound, um, you know, predators uh, roaming on the landscape beside their children and sheep and, and cattle and all the rest. Um, and so what we see in California is that pretty quickly following, you know, by the early 19-teens and 1920s, we see the disappearance um, or total loss, really, of both the iconic golden bear, you know, there, the, the icon on our flag is, is hunted to extinction, mm-hmm. and wolves as well. And we see wolves steadily being knocked, you know, the populations are knocked out throughout the western states until, um, you know, they really are just remnant populations mm-hmm. in northern Montana, maybe along the California border. Right. So this is what a period of nearly a hundred years now where we haven't had wolves on this landscape. And obviously the landscape has changed quite significantly in that time. What challenges will that 
offer to the wolves? How do you think we're going to see the wolves returning to this landscape that is is really quite different now? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The landscape has changed significantly, and you know one of the ways we as ecologists think about how the return of of what really is essentially a keystone species in the wolf. By keystone, of course, we mean a species whose leverage, whose impact on the ecosystem is greater than its its numerical representation. So if you compare, you know, how many deer there are compared to wolves or something in a, in a, in a healthy ecosystem, or, um, you know, there would be far more deer than wolves, but we feel like an individual wolf has a greater ecological impact. And so, you know, how do we predict what it means for wolves to come back into this landscape? You know, what's changed? And of course, today, what we see is, um, you know, a huge change in the number of Californians on the landscape, number of people on the landscape, and our impacts uh, through roads, through habitat development, through uh, deforestation, or or in some cases reforestation, um, you know, just our settlement patterns and our activities dramatically change where wolves are going to feel comfortable on this landscape and where they're going to find prey. Mm-hmm. And so we can make, you know, pretty informed predictions, I think, about where wolves will be able to survive as they spread across California. Those predictions can be based on where people will tolerate them mm-hmm. and where, where they will find food um, and not food that's going to bring them into conflict with people like livestock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really is, it's a different, it's a new world for the wolves coming back. And it's one in which, um, you know, they're going to have to really accommodate people more mm-hmm. than, to survive more than they would have in the past. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I think one thing we under, often underestimate with wolves is their ability to survive in those modified landscapes in this new world uh, mm-hmm. that we see in California. Um, so I think most folks who studied wolves realize how resilient they are and that if they're left alone to some extent, that is if they're not constantly persecuted by people, they have an amazing mm-hmm. capacity to fill in uh, you know, around human habitation, to fill in areas uh, where they can be tolerated and find food. Talking about human attitudes to wolves, this is this is something that we brought up uh, quite a bit in the previous interview with Professor Meech, is that wolves bring out incredibly strong feelings in people, whether it's passionately, you know, in favor of them or, or with, with real sincere fear. I'm interested in just taking us back to that, that potted history, because I think we got to the point where we were seeing federal action to kind of bring down those populations, and we, we said goodbye to the wolf in California, and then... There was obviously some change in public sentiment or drive because that did change and we started to see them returning, right? So could you just just get us to that part and bring us that part of the picture, which is, is much more recent? Yeah, well, I think the process of sort of society, the, the change in perspective in society is is a probably, you know, complex and, mm-hmm. and a deep sort of, deeply um, sort of historical analysis. And I'm probably not, uh, I'm certainly not prepared professionally to go too far with that, but I can give you my, my personal take. Yes. And I think, um, you know, to a large degree, I think a few things happened, uh, certainly for the, if we think about, um, let's say, a, a large proportion of Californians and maybe a majority of Californians. I haven't seen polls on this issue, but I would bet a majority of Californians are open to the idea of or, po- or feel positively inclined towards the return of wolves to California. And I think there's a few things going on. I think one thing is that Californians, because they haven't lived with wolves in a very long time, we take wolf stories mostly from the media. Mm -hmm. And what we see and hear about a lot is the success, both ecologically and 
and really economically is what we hear about the return of wolves in Yellowstone. Um, it's been a major boon to tourism efforts. Uh, wolves continue to be a, a boon to tourism efforts in Alaska, and there's been studies showing the value of wolves to tourism in Alaska. Um, so we hear those those positive stories, and we've also heard through a lot of work in you know in ecology and through you know trophic science, uh, we hear about the positive impact wolves have had in restoring uh, healthy ecosystems or helping to restore healthy ecosystems in areas where they've returned. So I think Californians, um, again, because it's not, it, you know, they haven't had wolves on our doorstep, uh, but we also have, I think we're, you know, generally growing in our acceptance or understanding of the uh, concept that more diverse or more biologically intact ecosystems ultimately shows that we're better stewards of, of the land, but also is uh, is more likely to have, ultimately have positive benefits for us, including maybe regulation of things that affect us in the environment, like Lyme's disease, or maybe through reducing uh, species like deer that in at least urban areas are becoming very problematic. Um, so I think there's a few things that have gone on, but I, I would say one of them has just been that we haven't really had to deal with the tough part of having wolves, which is conflict with livestock. And, um, you know, we're seeing this with the spread and increase in numbers of mountain lions. We're seeing mountain lions now on the edges or even really almost in urban areas uh, through, through much of California. Mm. So we're starting to face the, the challenges of, of having large carnivores on our doorstep there. But I do think there's a lot of tolerance. And I think people are willing today to be more tolerant and smarter or more willing to adjust their own behavior in order to you know, allow coexistence with, with these large wild carnivores. We talked a bit about the regulations that came up, and and then they, when they changed again, and am I right? You have to put me right. Um, the seventies and eighties, right, was a time when we really saw a change in what was acceptable. Can you help me out with what was acceptable then? Right, and so yeah, what we saw through the seventies and eighties, and continues really through through today is California sort of leading the U.S. in passing environmental regulations that start to really limit the control of carnivores. And, and much of it initially was targeted at things like black bears and bobcats and coyotes. But, you know, first we see the passage of uh, CEQA, which is California's version of the Endangered Species Act, but CEQA is actually uh, strict, more strict than the National Endangered Species Act. And so CEQA starts to really affect how people impact ecosystems. And then a series of laws are passed, uh, propositions are passed, that, um, you know, affect or alter the tools that, you know, wildlife services or other uh, individuals can use to try and remove wildlife from the landscape. And particularly, you know, the, the, the two that had a huge effect on large carnivores was the banning of all use of poisons on the landscape, because poisons had been a really effective form of lethal control. And then uh, banning of the use of dogs in hunting in California um, probably had the greatest impact, a positive impact for mountain lions and bears, both of which have shown steady population increases following that ban. Uh, California banned the use of leg hold traps, which was, a, again, an effective way to catch particularly uh, carnivores. And um, and then more recently, uh, several counties have um, broken their contracts with this with the federal wildlife control agency, Wildlife Services, mm. um, and that has meant that Wildlife Services, where it is acting in those counties, is only acting on the behalf of of smaller organizations or individuals. And so that's a major change 
in who's doing the control and the methods available to them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, California, through the legislative process, uh, has basically said, uh, we don't want this removal or this killing or, you know, based on your your politics, it's either, you know, killing or, or uh, necessary culling, mm-hmm. but um, we don't want this occurring, uh, you know, on, on our landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ways that it's going to occur are only when it's absolutely necessary and under certain accepted, uh, using certain accepted methods. Mm. Thank you for that. I really appreciate you taking us all the way through <laughs> a long period of time and a lot of uh, um, both cultural changes and uh, ecosystem changes. But one thing that in the interview with Professor Meech we, we touched on and you've touched on as well is um, this um, issue of trophic cascades. And I guess you could say that there's been a, a lot of very positive kind of publicity about the effect that wolves can have on bringing back other native species and building habitats. Um, and, and one thing that Professor Meech did just urge us to be a little careful of was, was both not to totally vilify wolves and also not to see them as angels, to recognize that they are a part of the ecosystem and that particularly in returning to California, they are not returning. This is not one huge national park we're looking at. It's um, a very altered landscape. So can we expect similarly positive um, changes to, to be seen in, this, um, in, in their recovery here? Yeah, no, and I, I would echo uh, Dr. Meech's point. You know, I think, and you touched on this earlier, Hannah, but I think, um, you know, there may be no species in the world that is more sort of uh, both, you know, elevated to hero status and then also, uh, you know, denounced as a villain, uh, as, you know, as a wolf. And I think in both of those cases, um, it's, it's uh, hero status or villain status is far, uh, far outpaces its actual role ecologically. I mean, I think um, if we accepted the ways in which it truly impacts or engages within an ecosystem, I think both extremes of perspective would be much more tempered. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, you know, what we see, uh, I think what we're learning from places like the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is that wolves have had a, an important impact ecologically in certain geographic areas and for certain species, you know, mm-hmm. and that maybe those impacts don't really translate across the whole landscape there. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, we, what we're really seeing are changes in some areas and, and areas where those changes aren't, aren't as apparent or, and, and we don't expect them to be as apparent. And I think that's very much what we're going to see in California. I think there'll be places where wolves will interact with elk or deer populations or humans and, you know, livestock in ways where those, you know, those who are part of that change or who are observing it will feel like uh, wolves are bringing uh, pretty uh, intense, you know, change to to the landscape. Mm -hmm. But I think through most of California, and we'll all be studying this and we'll be watching this, but I think it'll be a much quieter return um, and a less eventful return than many of us, you know, would expect. Mm. So can you can you bring us right up to date? Where are we at with that return right now? There are some wolves just on on the border, right? Are we in, are we at that place now? We have wolves in California. Okay. Uh, I think that's well known. So we have wolves in California. So this is a it's not a future, you know, a futuristic scenario. It's actually happening mm-hmm. and it's real. And we have wolves that are exploring areas 
areas, habitats further mm-hmm. south, so traveling south through California. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, to my knowledge, there aren't established packs, you know, mm-hmm. further south than, than Shasta and mm-hmm. Siskiyou, but, mm-hmm. um, but there are wolves mm-hmm. uh, moving, and they can cover a huge amount of area, hundreds of miles in, mm-hmm. a, you know, in, in a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, as wolves are established in the north and individuals will constantly be traveling in various directions, but including south and looking for, for prey and looking for new you know, opportunities to set up new territories. And, um, and there's enough tolerance in the other areas where they, in the surrounding states where they occur, particularly in mm-hmm. eastern Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can expect sort of a steady, I think a steady uh, arrival of individual wolves mm-hmm. as they explore California. Mm-hmm. And we can predict, you know, ecologically, they're because you can you can look at a map of the state and see pretty quickly that they're likely to move uh, through the coastal range, perhaps down through the Mayakmas, um, you know, all the way towards the Bay Area, and then they're very likely to move through uh, through the Sierras, mm-hmm. and that's a wonderful corridor uh, through the state as well, where uh, there should be enough prey, you know, a prey base. Uh, it's going to be interesting times, that's for sure. I, I have just really one last question to, um, to, to, to put to you, and that is that, you know, we've touched on this a few times about public sentiment um, about these animals. And, and, and whatever way people feel, I mean, one thing I feel like I've learned is that's how they genuinely feel. That, it, you know, they're not putting on something. It's, it's, it's born out of their experience or their history or their family's history. So how, how do you think we're going to navigate that very extreme, very kind of polarized attitudes that we have to wolves? Can, can you see what do you think, you know, is, is going to happen and, and, and how is the best way to navigate that? Yeah, I think you raise an excellent point, and that is, I think we too we too often just dismiss fear. Um, I, you know, on on multiple sides of of a debate, um, I was, um, you know, uh, with my kids at a reptile show yesterday, and um, you know, we have as humans, most humans have a very deep, innate fear of snakes, and I think you could tell anyone, hey, just you know, relax. That's irrational. That that snake's not going to bother you, but Again, this is a fear that's probably been selected through thousands of years. I mean, it's a very healthy fear in a way, uh, because uh, snakes have probably been, you know, hurting us or killing us for quite a long time. And so I think we get into trouble uh, when either as a conservation community or as an environmental community, when we dismiss the fears individuals will have of, of the arrival of a, of a really apex carnivore on the landscape. And it really, you know, it really does present challenges. Um, we hear stories, or we can see in other states where wolves are, are now much more common, where uh, and environmental groups or state agencies will say, hey, everything's fine. We reimburse uh, livestock producers when a wolf kills their livestock. But again, uh, getting a bit of money after the loss of your animal isn't, doesn't undo uh, the stress or hardship um, or the difficulty of seeing an animal you've raised uh, dead on the ground, you know, having having been uh, eaten by carnivores, and so we, it, it is. It's a very real challenge on on every side, and and we need to go into it with an understanding and appreciation and a respect for the concerns that I think our producer community faces, and also that people, you know, living in in what will likely be the more rural areas where wolves will establish, we have to respect the concerns they'll face about. You know, there's small children facing uh, a large, you know, 
carnivore on, on the mm-hmm. landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really how we make progress is, mm-hmm. is by uh, uh, accepting and at least you know, trying to appreciate each other's concerns as we go forward. Mm-hmm. And then the state is going to have to be active in its management, and there's a lot of debate about what that means and whether that means active lethal control when wolves are occupying areas where they're interacting frequently with humans or whether that means really working hardest with people in those areas to try and identify ways to minimize uh, that conflict. Well, every time I speak with you, I think, gosh, we could have at least another show just going a little bit deeper into yeah. this. Today, I know um, we don't have time for that, but uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that you are working some of your research projects on our landscape here in Mendocino, and we appreciate that, and we appreciate that all that you're doing in, in helping as we do go through this process. Well, thank you, Hannah, and it's, a, it's an important time. It's a time of change ecologically in California, and um, it, oh, this whole story is going to play out for us in our lifetimes, uh, so it'll, it's important that we engage and, and, and try and understand it. Well, I'm sure you'll agree that that was a really wonderful opportunity to speak with Professor Justin Brashares from UC Berkeley to understand more of the impact of that return of wolves to California. It's really at the top of our minds right now as we welcome some new lambs back onto our site at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre and go through a period of the year when really our sheep are at the greatest risk of predators and wildlife which does live on the site and share the site with us. We've been working with Professor Justin Brashares to try to understand what methods we can use which will protect our stock but will also avoid lethal measures being used upon the wildlife of the area. We'll share more of that information and research results as we get them through the year. Now we're going to revisit another conversation from 2017 with some of our incredible Hopland Research and Extension Centre volunteer team This was recorded uh, back in 2017 with Janet McLeod and Margaret Husband. Some of the activities they were taking part in at that time have changed a little, but many are the same. If you feel excited about volunteerism after listening to this interview, please do get in contact with me. Again, my email hbird at ucanr or you can call 707-744-1424 extension 105. I'm here with one of the volunteers at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre, Margaret Husband, who was one of the volunteers who was involved in the ACORN project at the Fry Ranch in mid-December last year, 2017. Now, Margaret, let's get started. How did you, how did you come to find out about the Hopland Research and Extension Centre? Well, my husband and I, we moved up to Hopland um, in August and we would just wanted to know what goes on in, uh, in Hopland. So we discovered Destination Hopland and the first thing there was uh, Hopland REC. So mm. we thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So then we looked at the, the timetable and there was a walk coming up on a Saturday. So we both came up here. It was the petroglyph walk mm-hmm. and the, um, the stick. Mm-hmm. Where you the pick story things up, sticks. the story mm-hmm. stick. That's it, mm-hmm. and uh, and we just uh, we thought the place was so amazing, and um, but then we signed up for some other ones for the the bat evening and the stargazing. We came to the mushrooms and mm-hmm. we went to the uh, look round the bee and uh, butterfly bush in Hopland, and it was then that Hannah sort of contacted me and said, 
would you like to volunteer? And I thought, yeah, as long as it's quite close to Hopland. And so then before I knew it, she'd signed me up for phonology monitoring and deer, uh, deer transect. And, and my husband came along as well, and pff, the rest is history. <laughs> so you're enjoying it, right? Oh, my God, it's fantastic. That's good, because yeah. I, I agree that... Um, you know, we did we did snag you. We we see people coming to repeated events here and start to think, mm. this person likes this place. It would be great mm. to have them here as a volunteer. Yes. So it, it works out nicely for everybody. We feel um, we feel really honoured that we can actually come to this place and and see parts that nobody else probably has ever seen. Mm. So no, you're right. So today, well, I'm glad that you're part of it. And and today you've been out doing phonology. Could you give us a really brief description of what, what phonology is? It, the mon it is the monitoring of trees and shrubs, specific ones which are, are marked, uh, to check the, uh, the changes through the year. And it's for global warming, seeing if the, uh, the actual global warming is affecting the trees and shrubs. Mm. And did you know anything about phonology before oh, you started here? I had here? to look up and thought, what, I had to look and see what phonology meant. <laughs> I can't even say the word. <laughs> phonology. Phonology. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when I found what it was, and I thought, oh, that sounds terribly boring. But the two people I normally go with, Ingrid and Janet, they're fantastic. And they we have, taught me a lot. We have Janet in the, uh, in the studio with us, in the office with us right now, <laughs> entering phonology data. Janet, would yes. you agree you've, you've enjoyed phonology so far? Yes, I've enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I've learned a lot, and we get very excited when we see new phases on the trees and plants that we're monitoring, about 30 different species here. What are you seeing right now? Bay flowers. Bay flowers. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. So I'll let you finish telling about that while I do the data. <laughs> Thanks, Janet. <laughs> I've been doing it now for probably two, maybe three months, and I've seen so many changes and noticing so much more and uh, emerging leaves and how big is the canopy and and fruits and flowers and oh, ripe fruits and it's just so much and I've learned a lot. Does it make you look at Plant, plants all around differently. All the time. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to identify oak trees. I mean, I never realised there were so many oak trees. Mm -hmm. And they've all got different leaves and acorns. Not that we've had m many acorns this year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so speaking of acorns, um, you also got connected with one of the volunteer efforts that we've been working on um, regarding the post-fire recovery. Yes. And trying to do some oak woodland regeneration on areas that were burned. Yes. Um, and you specifically have helped out with um, the Fry Ranch planting that we did, I think it was December 13th. Just um, before Christmas, yeah. Yeah, could you tell us a bit about how that mm. went and, and what you did on the day? Well, it was devastating to see the, the, the damage that had been done, um, um, but we were there to eventually, during the day, plant the um, acorns, which had been collected from many different sites and people and donating all these acorns and uh, so these were I think they were black oak that's right yes and uh, they had there and the first there was a, a talk first of all which was very interesting and then we broke up into two groups and we went my husband and I um, Tom <laughs> better give him a name um, <laughs> we went to the, f the further area and it was an area with uh, oak trees and madrones and it was just uh it was so sad mm. to see all these trees but the oak trees were looking 
as if they would survive. Um, but our job to begin was to cut the uh, the branches and the trees and uh, and make piles of uh, of the brush and the larger branches, and then we were able to start planting. We had to clear areas first, and we just made a circle, and we were in like groups of two, and we were given a handful of acorns, and we were told how to plant them. You know, two together, and there were about three or four in a circle, and then you mark the middle and where the acorns have been uh, planted. And then we had to use the brushwood um, and sticks to build like a cage round it to prevent the, uh, the deer eating the new plants when they grow. Mm. And, uh, and I would just love to go back and seeing whether our particular fence <laughs> or cage worked because there were some beautiful ones some people were weaving like basket fences and it was amazing Gosh. and how lovely that you were managing to use these natural materials exactly um, to, to make this um, yes. cover for them mm. yeah i really hope that there is a chance for us to go back um i don't know in a few years time even and just see yes. what happens with some of those seedlings yes and i know and i'm sure you saw that day as well that katrina fry was there with us and was yes. so grateful mm. for um the efforts that were being put in that day it, it was after such a horrific time that everybody had whether or not mm. it was your land that was burned or not just the fear that came up with it I felt like mm. it was such um just a time of hope that we, we exactly came to. that you know hopefully that there's something will be regenerated mm -hmm. from the fire well thanks for being part of that effort and thanks for everything you do here Margaret and uh, <laughs> maybe he will convince some other people to come and volunteer with us after well, this interview. please do because it's a it's a fantastic experience thank you this has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.